The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Form Book Club, where Vivian Dudo, myself, Father Kessler, and Joseph Pierce continue to discuss the Spirit of Liturgy by Joseph Ratzinger, or the newer anniversary volume, same title. Um, we finished the section or part on art and liturgy, the chapter on images, art, and we spent two full sessions on music uh, because it's of such contemporary importance to discuss this. We now move to part four, the physical form, and the first chapter is called Rite, as in ritual. And I think uh, for this chapter as well, there's going to be a lot of discussion on issues that really are quite relevant to what happens to normal Catholics when they go to Mass. So let's, let's jump in. Uh, page 92 or 106 in the Hello. new version. I'm here. Oh, 173. Oh, sacred time. Woo! Long bookmark, page 173, or 159 in the old version. Uh, a few lines down there, uh, we must first of all see what right in the church really means. Typical Lassinger, you know, ask the question, what's it going to be? And how they relate to one another. In the second, said, oh, uh, in the second century, the Roman jurist Pomponius Festus, who was not a Christian, defined ritus as, quote, an approved practice in the administration of sacrifice, close quotes. And later on, a few lines down, Ratzinger says, man is always looking for the right way of honoring God, a reform of prayer and common worship that pleases God it is appropriate to his nature. And that's what we're going to be talking about here. Important, very last line of the page. Orthodoxy, from orthos, which means correct or right, and doxe, which means glory. Therefore, the right way to glorify God, the right form of adoration. So that's the general idea of right. Middle of the page. For Christians, then right, in quotes, means the practical arrangements made by the community in time and space for the basic type of worship received from God in faith. And of course, as we saw in the first part of this book, worship always includes the whole conduct of one's life and not just time in church. Thus, rite has its primary place in the liturgy, but not only in liturgy. It is also expressed in a particular way of doing theology in the form of spiritual life and the juridical ordering Ecclesiastical life. So again, 
he's always comprehensive in the way he was about discussing these things. Anything on this point, Joseph, or Vivian, you want to comment on? Well, the All only right. thing, I, I, you, you mentioned it, but I did, did just think, although this uh, Pomponius Festus was not a Christian from Roman antiquity, I thought that his um, his definition of right or uh, was absolutely perfect, approved practice in the administration of sacrifice. And it's so good when you can begin by defining your terms and you can have like a solid foundation on which to build, you know? Uh, 174, towards the bottom. If we want to get an overview of the whole, which is always trying to do, then the sixth canon of the First Council of Nicaea may be a helpful starting point. It speaks of three primatial seas, Rome, Alexandria, and Anna, because here we're talking about rights in the sense of a Byzantine right, Antiochian right, Roman right, Latin right, and so on. There's different forms of worship in one Catholic church. And this was illuminating for me. He shows how these are originating in the different seas that were important in the early church. So it speaks of three prim primatial seas, Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, which is in Syria. Next page, since the fourth century, soon after Nicaea, Byzantium emerged as an initial regulatory center of ecclesiastical and also of liturgical life. So that's he begins to discuss these different rites. I, I didn't go into them, but do you want to make any comments on the different, you know, the West Syrian rites, Syro Malachar rite, the Maronite rite, and so on? Well, I did want. Sorry, sorry, Vivian. I simply wanted to point out that he affirms on page 176 that Thomas the Apostle was a missionary in India, uh, that this has to be taken seriously at the historical level. So for him to weigh in on that, because I've seen that being a controversial question, is that just legend or did Thomas in fact go to India? So for uh, Joseph Rotzinger to come to weigh in, I now weigh, <laughs> lean I that, lean yeah. toward that, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so my, my question just was, Father, I don't know if you can throw some light on this. So you know, going back to that, um, you know, the, the, uh, the definition, approved practice in administration of sacrifice, and then we have this multiplicity of rights. Is there an essential unity that, 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 that holds the multiplicity together? Um, or are they sort of different uh, in in sort of something much more essential? Is it about it's an accidental differences, or is it or is it substantial differences? Well, I I don't like that division because uh, is it accidental that Carmelites have brown habits? If they had polka dot, would it be the same thing? But it's an accident. Uh, but I, I would approach it a different way, Joseph, and say that the the rites are not incommensurable by any means. They have a core of unity, which cannot be necessarily teased out or extracted in a Kantian or Cartesian way. But the structure of the rite, liturgy of the word, liturgy of the Eucharist, that is common to them all. The words themselves, the sacred scripture is the same. It might be different pericopes or different sections of scripture. So we have that uh, in common. And then the Eucharistic prayer at the heart of the canon 
is close to identical. So certainly the structure is the same. Uh, and what's the consecration, for instance? Are, are they essentially the same in all the? They are. Ways? Yes. Yeah. They are. I mean, yeah. You've answered. In fact, what I, I've you know, it's always kind of interested me the Armenian rite, uh, or maybe Antiochian. They actually use Aramaic uh, as their liturgical language. I thought that was the Chaldean. Right? Maybe it's Chaldean. Yeah, Chaldean. It is Chaldean. So that they're actually using the same words that were spoken at the Last Supper. You know, that's pretty impressive. The point that, you know, he does go into a lot of detail, but the point that he's making by doing so is at the bottom of 177, where he says, it is important that the individual rites have a relation to the places where Christianity originated and the apostles preached. So he emphasizes that later on, that this is truly part of the apostolic tradition. Sometimes uh, we, you know, put only certain things in the category of apostolic tradition, and we don't always think about the original rites of worship as being part of that. At least I hadn't. Yes, and I, I one little phrase I would add, or clause, they are anchored, the rites, in the time and place of the event of divine revelation. Mm -hmm. So it's apostolic, but of course the apostles were, were there where revelation took place, and they're the ones who in the spirit are giving a witness of revelation. Yeah, what I like about that is obviously that that, that the the uh, the mass points towards eternity, but it's rooted in time, right? So there's, there's an incarnational dimension to it, even though it points to heaven. Which uh, again, that's that's appropriate because that's exactly what Christ does. The uh, and then he draws this conclusion one seventy eight or one sixty four in the old version. Just before the new paragraph, middle of the page, rights are not, therefore, just the products of enculturation, however much they must be incorporated in elements from different cultures. They are forms of the apostolic tradition and of its unfolding in the great places of the tradition. So it's not just accidental in that language you brought up, uh, Joseph, that we have a Byzantine rite and an Alexander rite and so on. Uh, the the same event, apostolic tradition is unfolding, is takes place in different locations, and therefore it's different modalities, so to speak. Uh, and then the next sentence, which begins his second uh, uh, kind of theme here, we must add a second point. Rights are not rigidly fenced off from each other. So again, that brings up your point, Joseph. They're not... There's a commonality there. Bottom of the page, what is important is that the great forms of right embrace many cultures. They not only incorporate the diachronic aspect, that is, through time, through history, but also create communion among different cultures and languages synchronic, that is, at the same time. Uh, they elude control by any individual, local community, or regional church. And here's a key expression for him. Unspontaneity, unbelievikeit, unspontaneity is of their essence. In these rites, I discover that something is approaching me here that I did not produce myself, that I am entering into something greater than myself, which ultimately derives from divine revelation. Now, this is, he's laying the foundation for some very practical conclusions here. He is. And it's, 
I have a, I, I wonder, reading this whole chapter, I was wondering about our situation as Americans not having thousands of years of history here and how much easier it is for us to sort of get unmoored from uh, that idea that something can be thousands of years old, not just 20 years old or five years, you know. And so when it comes to even doing liturgy, I mean, you hear this expression in people uh, who are on liturgy committees. And, you know, I think that this, uh, that, that this reality that he's bringing before our eyes is just so important to help us not just start floating off into these directions of our own whims or desires or fads or whatever. Right, because he's not saying there should be no introduction of new music or forms or so on. But he's trying to set the foundation. Look, liturgy comes not from committees in the past or the future or the present or in the future. It comes from something which in the apostolic tradition arising from the original revelation. And it already had different cultures which expressed that, but there was something given, something we received. We don't create, we don't manufacture, we don't make. Uh, He'll come back to that. Yeah, one question on that, Father, just uh, on a purely practical level, does the fact that unspontaneity is of the essence of white preclude uh, ad lib from the Mass? We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. 
please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. Yes, it does, although in the early stages before the, as far as we know, before the words of the liturgy were set down in a formula that everyone had to use, uh, we even see, I think it's in, uh, I think it's in Justin Martyr that at the Eucharistic prayer, the president, the presider does as best he can, you know, uh, but there was a structure. Even the ad lib was within uh, a clear structure. But the point is, the church has gone through that stage of formation. Now it is formed. It's not the role or position of an individual priest or bishop or the Pope himself to introduce ad lib elements to the liturgy. So if you could then clarify for us the meaning of what he says on the bottom of 179 about the Pope. Uh, it would never have been considered, you know, that the Pope could do anything in liturgical matters. What is he, what is he explaining here? Uh, so, well, let's do that whole, that whole section okay. there. The, more well, well, is, what the bottom of 179. The 165 okay. in the old edition. The more vigorously the primacy was displayed, that is, the papacy, the more the question came up about the extent and limits of this authority, which, of course, as had never been considered before, what's the extent of papal authority? After the Second Vatican Council, the impression arose that the Pope really could do anything in liturgical matters, especially if you were acting on the mandate of a national council. Eventually, the idea of the givenness of liturgy, the fact that one cannot do with it what will, what one will, faded from the public consciousness of the West. In fact, the First Vatican Council was to find the infallibility of the Pope had in no way defined the Pope as an absolute monarch. On the contrary, presented him as a guarantor of obedience to the revealed word. The Pope's authority, and answer your question, Vivian, the Pope's authority is bound to the tradition of faith, and that also applies to the liturgy. It is not manufactured, in quotes, by the authorities. Even the Pope can only be a humble servant of its lawful development and abiding integrity and identity. Uh, and of course, he wrote this before he was Pope, but he also obeyed that himself as Pope, recognizing that he was under tradition and scripture, not over them. Mm -hmm. I mean, does that, yeah, that answer your question? Though? I think it does. And, and for me, for me, it's a, it's it's a question also of of, of logic um, <laughs> as well as theologic, shall we say? Um, that uh, clearly, uh, a Pope or anyone else in the church can't teach something which contradicts what the church has always taught because uh, that 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 would make a, 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 the whole base of the church being rooted in faith and reason nonsensical and would basically be a a, um, a, a disappearance of the quagmire relativism you know if we can make up as we go along and change our minds and, and contradict uh, what, what we've always always believed then the whole thing becomes uh, relativistic nonsense so uh, clearly you know a pope or anyone else can't contradict what the church already taught has always taught Yes, of course, in Things Human, as Aristotle says, it's always true for the most part. For example, 1962 or so, uh, John XXIII added to the canon of the Mass the name of St. Joseph. It wasn't there before. Mm. So can a Pope do that? Well, I think a Pope can do that. 
But, yeah, but that, that's that's addition, not contradiction. I mean, there's a difference, right? Well, that's true. That's true. But it's also, it's not a wholesale change. It's not manufacturing something. It's it's what begin, it's how the liturgy got this way. I mean, it's not as if the liturgy came down from heaven with no human intervention. I mean, it was made by human beings. Uh, and eventually became formulated, you know, as it was. Uh, but the Holy Spirit works that way. Uh, or you can't say, well, uh, they made this up earlier. Can't we make it up now? Well, not quite. That's not quite what happened, you know. Uh, by the way, just a, a comment here. Uh, I have seen a problem after the printing press. Uh, the liturgy has developed organically, like a tree would grow, not in contradictory ways, over the centuries, but was easier when there were no printed texts that everybody had. Now it's hard to have any change because you've got the, if you want to be faithful to the text, because you've got the text there, you know. Um, well, I think even of like certain gestures at Mass, I know there's a whole section on gestures, ahead, yeah. but you know how some people, oh, now I don't remember what part of the Mass it is, but they cross themselves and the Missionaries of Charity do it too. Oh, at the Confederate, at, at the beginning of Mass, yes. No, not at the beginning of Mass. This happens somewhere during the Mass. Okay. I. I'm sorry, it's escaping well, me where it is. It. But it's not, it, in other words, it's a, it's a local thing that some people do that there and other people don't. But you could see how over time, if enough people started doing it, and it's not that it contradicts anything about the Mass or that it's inappropriate or Mass or anything, but it isn't part of the way I had seen the Mass. It's, it's an introduction of something new. But what's new about crossing yourself? Nothing. So... Is that the kind of thing that over time organically could come and could go? It has nothing to do with changing the essence of the mass or the words of the mass, or it's just a gesture that people. And on that very issue, Vivian, uh, the extraordinary form has many signs of the cross, you know, sometimes five in a row. That the priest does. The priest does, yeah. Right. And, and they were eliminated totally, except for one at, at the beginning of the canon number one. But I. I make the sign of the cross once over the water as I'm blessing the water before the uh, mixing the wine and water. And at the consecration, when it says he broke and blessed the bread, I make the sign of the cross. That's not in the rubrics. So I'm not, I mean, it doesn't say I can't do that. Right. It also doesn't say I can't stand on my head, you know. So the fact that it's not in the rubrics doesn't mean you can do it. Right. But I, I feel that's. I want to be faithful to the rubrics, but I also want to, you know, be more in continuity with what happened in the past, including having some of those gestures in the mass. Anyway, so it's not it's it's it's. He says that a number of times in this chapter too. This is not a matter of rigidity. Well, it's hard to find where the where the flexibility yeah. is and isn't, and where things are fixed and where they're not. I mean, it's not it's not. Well, I, but I have a, a clear standard for that. If I do it, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're back to the yeah, relativism. Right. Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm trying to play with words here, and I'm going to take this further than it will go. But I, you know, I, if if we are using the word rigid deliberately, I mean, if he's using the word rigid here uh, in the pejorative sense, in other words. That, you know, it's something which is ossified or lifeless because of its rigidity. If he's using it in that term, then of, co of course that's not the case because there is this 
there's this organic growth, there's this dynamism within the liturgy itself. So it's not rigid in that pejorative understanding of the word. So, uh, you know, when I, when, it, when I went, he's sort of trying to defend, if you like, the living tradition right. from claims that it's ossified. I mean, that I don't know if that's what he means, but that's, that's the way I would sort of understand his use of the word rigid there, or at least possibly. Well, also... What I do is something I've thought about, prayed about, and I do it intentionally. I do, can, can, it's not, I'm not ad-libbing it. it. It's not something that comes to my mind while I'm celebrating Mass and I say something or do something. So I think there's that distinction, too, between un, you know, unspontaneity and rigidity. Uh, bottom page 181 slash 167. Uh, this is an important scripture. Is scripture only when it lives within the living subject that is a church? That makes it all the more absurd that an insignificant member of people today are trying to instruct the liturgy afresh on the basis of sola scriptura. That is, going back to what they thought the scriptures is about the mass in the early church. In these reconstructions, they identify scripture with prevailing accidental opinions, thus confusing faith with opinion. Again, what he's talking about here is that trying to go back from sacred scripture and and seeing what was the original celebration like. You know, we don't have too many hints. I mean, consecration for sure, uh, but the fact that they said the prayers, which were the Psalms in in the, in the synagogue, yes, but we really don't have uh, you know a uh, video of the earliest mass, and we have very limited historical references to it. So the idea of trying to go reconstruct it, he says, that gives you, gives you the opinions of the scholars. Uh, it sort of reminds me of von Balthasar's warning of people trying to go behind, you know, like yeah. if we could like get back to something before somehow, but... Well, like the, the search for the historical Jesus. Right. Who, you know, we have scripture, which kind of paints his portrait, but was he really like that? Let's get back behind scripture. Well, you have to do those studies, but that's where Rasker was a genius when his book on Jesus of Nazareth, is you have to combine historical critical re research with faith and spiritual understanding of scripture. It's a whole. We have to take it as a whole. And we can't damage that by our analytical tools. Uh, I would like to suggest, by the way, Father, this is this is a this is a, a moment moment of spontaneity on my part. But this the form book club, not a liturgy, so that's okay. Um, could, could, could we add uh, Jesus of Nazareth to, to one of the books we can discuss in the relatively near future? All three volumes. Yeah, is there, there's not there's not a distilled version then. Why, why not all three volumes? We. We could do the, the the infancy stories during Advent, and then we could wait until later in the year to do the passion week, stories. Yeah. And, you know, but why not do the whole thing? Well, I, 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 be I, great. I'm, I'm in favor of it. It would be wonderful. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've never read it. And, and you know, I've, I've always thought that if I'm going to read A Life of Jesus or a book on Jesus of Nazareth, I, I, I wouldn't trust anybody more than Ratzinger to do it. So, uh now, if I'm going to do it, I can't think of a better better people to do it than you two because uh, you'd be enlightening me along the way. It's like taking a class in it, not just reading it. All right, let's let's put that high on the list of things coming. Okay. Uh, continuing this paragraph on 182, liturgy quote manufactured in this way is based on human words and opinions. It is a house built on sand and remains totally empty. 
however much human artistry may adorn it, only respect for liturgy's fundamental unspontaneity and pre-existing identity can give us what we hope for, the feast in which the great reality comes to us that we ourselves do not manufacture but receive as a gift. This means, and here's the conclusion, oh, it starts the next paragraph, that, quote, creativity, close quotes, cannot be an authentic category for matters of visual. Now, he's clearly being polemical here in a sense that this is something that was very, very prevalent uh, in the time he's writing this in mm-hmm. the 90s. Uh, creativity, let's be creative. He said, no, no, that's not a liturgical category at all. Mm-hmm. And I like the fact immediately after that he does point to the fact that this whole process uh, has its roots in, in, in a Marxist worldview. It developed from a Marxist worldview. Creativity means that in a, in a universe that in itself is meaningless mm-hmm. and came to existence through blind evolution, man can creatively fashion a new and better world. So, you know, the, the, you know, the, the fact is that these uh, modernist liturgists are actually basing their philosophy on ultimately an atheist, atheistic view of the cosmos. I had just two other quotes I want to make before we finish this chapter in this session. Uh, four lines up from 182 slash 168. The life of the liturgy does not come from what dawns upon the minds of individuals and planning groups, mm-hmm. the committees. Yep. On the contrary, it is God's descent upon our world, the source of real liberation. He alone can open the door to freedom. The more priests and faithful humbly surrender themselves to this descent of God, the more new, in quotes, the liturgy will constantly be, and the more true and personal it becomes. Yes, the liturgy becomes personal, true, and new, not through tomfoolery and banal experiments with words, but through a courageous entry into the great reality that through the right is always ahead of us and can never be quite overtaken. One reason I quote so much is that there's no way we can we can say it better. Right. But it does remind me of Adrian von Speyer's and von Balbasar too, the ever greater. God's always ahead of us. Yeah. And uh, you know to try to encapsulate God is, is an absurdity, right? Yeah. The, the end of the chapter I mean, is is a, a kind of a, a down note compared to this very uh, eloquent and elegant thing, because it's a very particular thing. He says, for example, the sign of peace is exchanged not before communion, but before the presentation of the gifts. In Zaire, by the way. Pardon me? In Zaire. Oh, in Zaire, yeah. Which would be desirable for the whole of the Roman right, insofar as the sign of peace is something we want to retain. So he doesn't like the idea of disturbing communion by everybody shaking hands, but rather let's put it where it belongs before the offertory. But that's so interesting that he concludes with an African example and something, as we were talking about before, like where do some of these gestures come from and where do they uh, meld into the mass or not and how these do change. And so we're supposed to learn from each other, but that's very different from, yes, a committee getting together uh, and saying, how can we make Easter Sunday really great this year? Well, good. Anything else in Chapter 1 of Part 4 on rights? No, I'm, I'm, ast- I'm astonished that the, the timing is immaculate this time. <laughs> well, finally, after now. all these years, we did it once. All right, well, so next session, we'll 
take chapter two, the body and the liturgy. This a lot of interesting uh, things he's got there. So thanks, everyone. See you later. God bless you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.